Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we open it up and and take it and, and look at it, that you'd speak to us through it. Thank you, Father, that you meet us at the point of our need and that you restore us when we fall and you use us for your glory. We are privileged to be able to do that, Father, and um, I pray that you would just speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I have had the opportunity to speak a few times uh, this past couple months here, and, and I've just chosen some psalms to do that with, and uh, I was out at Marathon last time, and there was a woman that said, are you going to do a psalm again? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do a psalm. She goes, will you do number 51? And I said, well, I'll, I'll pray about that. And so as I prayed about uh, uh, this message today, uh, I looked at Psalm 51, and, and God just said, why don't you go ahead and do that? And so uh, we're going to look at Psalm 51. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn there, and we'll look at it together. Psalm 51 leads us to speak about the theme of failure. And it's not the sort of failure where you uh, take a risk in business and lose a bundle of money. It's not the sort of failure where you're on uh, the field of athletic competition and you take your best shot and miss the goal. It's not the sort of failure where uh, you go down swinging in a noble cause. Uh, Psalm 51 leads us to think about the sort of failure that you'd never want to admit. The sort of failure that you would never want to appear on the big screen here for everybody to see. And if you did see your failure on that screen, you'd want to dig a hole and crawl in it. That is the sort of failure that Psalm 51 speaks of. It is David's greatest failure. And yet Psalm 51 shows us that if we will come to God in the midst of our failure, if we will come to God with our failure... He is there and he is waiting to forgive us and to restore us. So we're going to look at Psalm 51. I wonder how many times we sideline ourselves when God wants to restore us and put us back in the game. Uh, We have asked him for forgiveness again and again for the same thing, and yet we find ourselves there all over again. And we begin to wonder how many times am I going to do this? How many times is he going to forgive me? Let me set the context here. David, who wrote Psalm 51, had blown it big. It was his biggest failure, the sort that he would have loved never to have gone public with. And it's recorded in uh, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Let me just sort of sum it up for you. In the spring of the year, it tells us that when Kings would go forward with their armies. David stayed in the capital city. He was in the wrong place to start with. And he was out on his balcony, and he saw on a nearby rooftop a a woman bathing, and he inquired, who is this? And he sent for her. And as a Middle Eastern monarch, he pretty much had absolute power, and so he had her brought to him, and he committed adultery with her. Her husband... Uriah was off fighting Israel's wars, and David took Uriah's wife Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. He got busted because Bathsheba got pregnant. It became uh, evident in time, but as soon as David knew it, he thought, I've got to figure out how to get out of this. I've got to figure out how to cover this up. So he sends Uriah 
from the battlefield back into Jerusalem. He calls for Uriah, and he thinks, if Uriah only will spend the night with his wife, I can clear myself from this pregnancy. But Uriah is a man of personal conviction, and he will not sleep in his own bed while his soldiers are sleeping in tents. And so Uriah sleeps on the porch step, and uh, then David says, well, I guess I'm not going to get myself off that easily. And so he sends Uriah back into the battle with a note. And the note is to be delivered to the commander, Joab, and it says, put Uriah in the front ranks of the fighting where it is most intense. And when the enemy comes on strong, I want you to pull back and make sure Uriah gets killed. And so David has gone from adultery to murder now. And what's interesting, when you look at the timing of the whole thing, you find that he has lived with these sins for the better part of a year. It is after the child is born that the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him. I wonder what David's kingship was like during that year. I wonder how effective he was that year in his kingship. I wonder how lukewarm his walk with God was in that year. I wonder how tentative his decisions were, how weak his leadership was during that year. I doubt that he did anything of any great significance for God. I'm certain he was focused on other things than his relationship with God during that year. But then the prophet Nathan shows up And he does the courageous thing. He confronts this Middle Eastern monarch with almost unlimited power with the sin in his life. And then David finally takes his failure to God. And there he finds mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration. It was David's biggest failure. But it was also the biggest turnaround in David's life. And the thing that Satan intended to use to sideline David became a song. It became a song that David sang. It became a song that David gave to his people. It became a song that we know as Psalm 51. A song that celebrates what God can do when failures come to him. Now, I'd be willing to bet that there isn't anybody in this room that has done anything as bad as what David did. I think we're all pretty much safe from that accusation. And yet, I think there's not anybody in this room that hasn't done something that pops to mind every now and then and just makes us go, oh, no. The very memory of it just makes us wince. I know that happens to me. I'll bet it happens to you from time to time. David found forgiveness in God. And David's song tells us that if God can forgive and restore him, he can forgive and restore any of us. Wasn't that what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he penned those words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and called himself the chief of sinners? And then he went on to say, God showed me mercy, the chief of sinners, as an example for all who would believe. In other words, if God can forgive me, the chief of sinners, he can forgive anybody. That was Saul, or Paul's testimony 
That's David's testimony as well. What does it take to recover from our failure? We find three elements in Psalm 51. We find an open admission, a gracious God, and an acceptable offering. If you're following along in your bulletin, you can, there's some space in between those headings to take notes. We're going to move fairly quickly through that. But let's take a look at this open admission, what I would call verses 0 through 5. And you may say, what, what's this about a verse 0? Well, in our English Bible, there are some words right after the psalm number that aren't numbered in our Bibles, but they are numbered in the Hebrew Bible. And so our verse 1 is really verse 3 in the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to start at verse 0 and read through verse 5. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. An open admission. David says several things to God in this admission as we look through this section. The first thing he says to him is, is I admit, I admit. And it's even there before we get to verse 1 in our English Bible. That phrase, when Nathan the prophet went to him. It reminds us of that story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Nathan goes to David and tells him a story about a man with a lamb. There's a man who owned just this little ewe lamb. It was all he had. But he had a neighbor who was a wealthy man who had flocks and herds, and the wealthy man had a visitor come, and the wealthy man was unwilling to, to take an animal from his own flock. And so he came and took hold of this little ewe lamb that this man had, it was a part of his family, and he slaughtered the lamb and served it to his guest. And when David heard these words, it says he became indignant. And he said, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan lowers the boom. And he says, you're the man. You're the man. And David's response at that point, maybe he'd lived with it long enough. His response was, I have sinned. I have sinned. And he takes his sin to God. He admits his sin and he turns to God for mercy. And this psalm, Psalm 51, is the result of that confrontation and that confession. Do you have any Nathans in your life? How do we respond to the Nathans in our life? What has become of the Nathan in our life? Do we see them as a threat? Do we try to defend ourselves against them? Do we try to rationalize our sin before them? Do we try to silence them? Where have the prophets gone? Is anybody willing to confront us anymore with our sin? Or have we made ourselves 
unconfrontable. Nathans aren't always gentle when they come to us. They're not always full of grace. They don't always choose the right words. They don't always make us feel good. In fact, most of the time, they don't make us feel good at all. But we need them in our lives. And we need to fight the urge to defend ourselves against them. And we need to listen to them. And then when we've listened to them, we need to take it to the Lord and say, Lord, is it true? Have I done that? Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, used to pray, Lord, help me see the grain of truth hidden in every criticism. There's a grain of truth to be found. Samuel Brengel was one of the early leaders of the Salvation Army movement, and whenever he was criticized, even unjustly, he had the same response. He would say, thank you for that rebuke. I believe I deserved it. Would you pray for me? That's a great and humble response to the Nathans in our life. David begins his open admission by saying, I admit, I have sinned. And next we find David saying, I appeal. Look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He appeals to God. The answer to David's failure, he knows, can only come from God. And so he appeals to God. The number three is a significant number to the Hebrew mind. It is a number of completion, completeness. You remember when Peter denied Jesus? How many times did he deny him before the cock crowed? Three times. Remember when Jesus spoke to Peter on the shore of Galilee after the resurrection and asked him, Peter, do you love me? How many times did he ask him that? Three times. Peter completely denied Jesus. He denied him three times. Jesus completely restored Peter, restored him three times. And here we find David appealing to God with those same numbers in mind. He um, says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Mercy, steadfast love, and this abundant mercy is a different word from the first one. He is appealing to the, the completeness of the grace of God. He knows that God is complete in his graciousness if only he will come to him. And then he confesses his transgressions, his iniquity, and his sin. There's another three, and he's saying, I have completely let you down, God. I have completely failed here. And then he says, God, would you please blot out? Would you please wash away? Would you please cleanse? Another three, so that God would completely restore God is complete in his grace. David was complete in his failure. And he knew God was complete in his ability to restore him. That word steadfast love that shows up in our text is the Greek word, or the Hebrew word hesed. You've probably heard it before. It speaks of the covenantal love of God. And what it reminds David is that though he has failed, he still belongs. He still belongs under God's covenantal love. 
but he needed to be washed clean like a shirt with a stain, except it's not a dirty shirt, it's a dirty heart, and only God can do that. So David says, I admit, I appeal, and third thing he says is, I agree, verses 3 and 4. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, I agree, God, you are right. You're right. The Greek word homologeo is is the New Testament counterpart of this. It, It means literally to say the same thing. It is our word, English word, confess. When we confess our sin, we are agreeing with God about it. We are agreeing that we have done it. We are agreeing that it was wrong, and we are agreeing to turn from it. And David is experiencing the same thing here. He's saying, I agree, God, with your judgment on my sin. What I did was wrong. He says, my sin is ever before me. Have you ever thought about who put it there? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to our conscience to remind us of these things until we bring them to God and find the cleansing and freedom that he offers. David then finally goes on to say, I acknowledge, verse 5. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he's saying here is my sin was no accident. I didn't just stumble into this. I did this willfully. Do you remember the, the story of the golden calf from Exodus 32? Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments of God. Aaron, his brother, is down leading the people. And he asks them for all of their articles of gold, golden earrings and jewelry and that sort of thing. He melts it all down and fashions this golden calf for them to worship. Moses comes down from the mountain and confronts Aaron with his sin. What does Aaron say? It is an amazing thing. In Exodus 32, verse 24, he says, we uh, put the gold in the fire and out came this calf. Out came this calf. What an amazing ducking of responsibility. David doesn't do that. He says, my sin was no freak accident. I didn't act out of character. This was nothing new. This is deeply ingrained in me. I've been this way since the day I was born. Sin is not just a problem of what we do. It's a problem of who we are deep down inside. And the solution can only come from God. David begins with an open admission. What stands in the way of our coming clean with an open admission ourselves when we fail? Are we afraid of how we're going to look in front of other people? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a a wonderful little book called Life Together. And in it, he said, sin demands to have a man alone. When it's got you alone, it's got power over you. But when you bring your sin into the light of the fellowship of other believers, when you can confess your sin in the presence of a brother or a sister in Christ, you will gain power over it it will lose its power over you. We need an open admission. The second thing we find in Psalm 51 is a gracious God. 
A gracious God. Look at verses 6 through 12. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David makes a series of appeals here because he knows that God is gracious. The first thing David asks is, teach me. Teach me, Lord. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I know in some other translations that's an imperative. Teach me. Teach me wisdom in the inner place. We need to know the truth about ourselves. We need to know the truth about what's deep down inside. This is not just a matter of sin management. It's a matter of getting to the heart of things. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's only after we have dealt with the truth of who we really are inside and come to God with that can we find forgiveness and restoration. God is not just concerned with the externals. He's concerned with the inner person. We've got to experience truth on the inside in order to see real change on the outside. And after David says, teach me, he says, cleanse me, in verse 7. Literally, unsin me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was used in the very first Passover, Exodus chapter 12. We find God instructing his people on the, the day before their departure from Egypt, At midnight, I want you to kill a spotless lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb and sprinkle it over the doorposts of your house with a branch of hyssop. Kind of use it like a paintbrush and use that hyssop to apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Leviticus chapter 14 shows that the same procedure is used in cleansing a leper, the hyssop branch, is used there as well. And that one ends with the pronouncement, and he shall be clean. Does that sound familiar? We just read it in Psalm 51. David says, do that for me, Lord. I'm like a leper. I have no hope but you. Cleanse me with hyssop like a leper, and I shall be clean. Next, David says, heal me. Heal me, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David knows that God brings us to brokenness, not to leave us there, but to lead us to repentance. And when he says, let me hear joy and gladness, he's picturing the return of that leper to the community. God wants our restoration. And then David says in verse 9, forgive me. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. It's a vivid picture of God not looking anymore at David's sin. It's a picture of God looking at the ledger where David's behavior is recorded and blotting out the things that he did that were wrong. And then finally in verses 10 through 12, David asks, renew me. Renew me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Create in me a clean heart. That's the same word create as we find in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. It speaks of God creating the universe out of nothing. It is something God alone can do. What David is asking for here is a miracle. God, you know what's deep inside of me. Now would you create something new there? Would you create a clean heart in me? He says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He'd seen what happened to Saul when God's Spirit left him. And he says, please, God, don't let that happen to me. Renew me. A gracious God. David comes to him with an open admission. He finds a gracious God. And I wonder if sometimes we think less of God than being fully gracious. That somehow he's run out of grace when it comes to us. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And God is full of grace. And we can run to him when we failed him. The last section, verses 13 to 19, tells us the third thing that we find. We find an open admission. We find a gracious God. We find an acceptable offering. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then he broadens his concern, his appeal out to the nation. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As we finish reading Psalm 51, we find David searching for an acceptable offering, not as an incentive to God, not to bribe him to try to forgive, you know, to try to bribe him and forgive David, but as a response to his having been forgiven. Three themes come out of these remaining verses. The first is real brokenness. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It brings back to mind verse 8, where he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God uses our brokenness to bring us to himself. What can we offer him? We begin with a broken heart. God is looking for true humility, real brokenness. And then what we find next is renewed thankfulness. The theme runs throughout these verses. All David wants to do is live his life as a thank offering to God as a response for his graciousness. 
And then he discovers, rediscovered usefulness. Rediscovered usefulness. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. How? Because I have been there. I've been where they are. And if God can forgive me, he can forgive them. And he goes on to want to become God's mouthpiece in verse 15. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. An acceptable offering. Real brokenness, renewed thankfulness, rediscovered usefulness. Not to get God to forgive us, but as a response to his forgiveness. Okay, so we've looked at Psalm 51 a little bit. Let me ask you this. What would it mean to David for this psalm to be sung in public? Put yourself in David's place. You've written these words out about the biggest failure in your life. Do you want them sung publicly? This was David's biggest failure. To to sing this psalm publicly would remind him of his sin every time. But it would also remind him of the amazing grace of God. It would be terribly humbling for David. It would be amazingly glorifying to God. David has brought his failure to God and he's experienced the amazing grace of God And that's the rest of the story that makes this song worth singing. It makes it worthwhile for David to sing this in public. This Middle Eastern monarch with almost unlimited power sings this song of his failure, his sin, his brokenness, and his restoration. What Satan meant to use to put David on the sideline became a song. That David sang, that David gave to his people, that David gave to us, that tells of the amazing grace of God. Picture yourself in the room with David as he's putting these words down. He finishes the psalm, he looks at it and goes, I can't sing this. I can't share this. What do you want to tell him at that moment? I know what I'd want to tell him. Sing the song, David. Sing the song. We need it. Sing it. Think about yourself for a moment. Is there something that has sidelined you, that has made you less than fully effective in your response to God's call on your life? Do you find yourself kind of like David in that first year before Nathan had come to him with your walk with God is tepid, your your decision-making is weak, your leadership is poor because you've allowed Satan to sideline you because of a failure? Do you have a song that's waiting to be written and sung and shared? Think of the hope that you could give to others who feel trapped in their sin, who have sidelined themselves in the cause of Christ.
because of their failure. A few of us are working on a retreat for men for the spring, men who want to know victory over sexual temptation. Pornography is sidelining good men. What could happen if a number of these Davids would come and would find victory? Psalm 51 could be written again and again. And we want to help them write it. We want to help them sing it. Maybe your struggle doesn't include sexual sin. Maybe it doesn't include pornography. But it does involve anger or money or possessions or gossip or pride. And maybe you've silenced all the Nathans in your life. Listen to them. Humble yourself. Write your song. And then sing it for the glory of God. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we know that we have failed you. We know that sometimes we still do. And yet, Father, I pray that you would give us the the courage and the boldness to bring our failure to you. Because you're the only one that can ultimately deal with it. And Father, I thank you that you can create a clean heart in us. That you can renew a steadfast spirit in us. That you can take us off the sideline and put us back in the game and make us useful again. And so Father, I just pray that you would help us to have the boldness to write the song and to sing it. And to find the freedom that you give to those who will come to you in the midst of our worst failure, knowing that you are complete in your grace and your mercy. You abundantly pardon and you restore. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.